Hey guys, welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. We've got Dan here tonight as well. Howdy, Brian. Happy to join you. It's good to be back. We've been consistent here. We haven't missed a week yet. I intend to keep that up. I don't know about you, but I I think one a week is a good cadence for us. Hey, I think we can do it, but then I'm not the one who's done any of our editing. It's all been you (laughs) doing our advertising. You're a driven man. Well, it's it's a joy. So I'm I'm happy to to share these movies, share these experiences with you, and hopefully at least some listeners out there. Well, I've definitely enjoyed it too. And it's been a good excuse to check off some movies that I've been waiting to see for a while. Case in point, this evening's entry, Network from 1976. This is a movie that I've heard from a lot of people is good and hadn't gotten around to watching it until now what about you this was also my first time watching it i've known it as one of the seminal movies of the 70s and one of these movies that was just kind of a a zeitgeist where basically everybody immediately recognized it as a masterpiece of sorts and it has more or less held up that reputation so On that note, I actually did a little bit of research. So I found this really interesting website called They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? Are you familiar with it? I haven't heard of that site. I know it's a playoff of the title of, I think it's a book. Definitely there was a movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Right. I do believe it's a playoff that. And I don't know why they chose this in particular. I mean, I know that that's like a classic protester slogan shoot film, not people, or or things like that. So it's just, I guess, that sort of wordplay. But anyways, this site, they attempt to be the aggregate of all greatest ever lists, particularly from critics. And so they they have like this comprehensive, they have over 2,000 movies ranked, and it's like they have a format where they kind of plug it in. But they do a really nice job with like presentation and different ways you can slice and dice it. So anyways, I looked up the movies that we've seen to see which of them might have cracked their top 1,000. So I just looked at the top 1,000. This is actually the third one that we've talked about, the second one that's been the focus of one of ours. So uh, Suspiria is ranked 354th on that list, and Night of the Living Dead is ranked 241st on that list. Network would be third place out of those. It's 389th on that comprehensive best ever list which by the way includes lots of foreign films and like silent pictures it's like throughout film history so can i can i ask what they've got at number one at this point so they still have citizen kane at number one i know bfi in 2012 had their big citizen kane dethronement in the name of vertigo vertigo is number two on this list wow where have they got godfather godfather it's in the top 10 okay uh, the top 10 are Citizen Kane, Vertigo, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Rules of the Game, which is a French film from 1939 mm-hmm. by Jean Renoir, Tokyo Story by Ozu from 1953 at number five, Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini at six, The Godfather at seven, 
Sunrise by F.W. Murnau, which was a, uh, a silent picture, 1927. The Searchers by John Ford at number nine. And Seven Samurai by Kurosawa at number 10. Wow. I'll have to take a look at that. That sounds like it is a little bit more respectable than the IMDb Top 250. Yeah, this isn't just like bros posting that Shawshank Redemption is a 10 out of 10. So. And I have to say that I've wanted for a long time, if I can ever find a purveyor of horse meat, to do uh, an episode <laughs> of Count Gauntlet called They Eat Horses, Don't They? Oh, man. You do have a good long run of uh, eating unusual animals and meats on the show. That would be a good one to get in there. Definitely. So I knew a little bit about the reputation of this movie before we got here. I knew it had to do with a crazy man ranting on television and getting popular. And I knew that somewhere along the way there was going to be violence involved. And also, as you've said, that this movie is well regarded critically as kind of a quintessential movie about television. Um, Dan, I know that you are, well, I know that you really enjoy reading about television and television history. Did your experience studying the field, the genre, feel like it paid dividends watching this film? Yeah. I mean, I really, the only thing I knew about it was we're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. That was, I didn't really know anything beyond that. I didn't even know there was going to be violence involved, but I, I would say I actually am not sure that my appreciation of television history was the thing that was really evoked here. What was more evoked for me is the satirical elements that probably seemed exaggerated in the 70s and now just seem almost like glaringly obvious about what the television network landscape and the way that we consume media and how it impacts the way that we live and we think. Uh, to me, that was really what I was thinking about this entire time as I was watching this because this, I didn't know it was like a satire, but it is very much a satire. I think every satire gets called prescient at some point. But this one really does seem prescient in the sense that I don't know exactly what the TV landscape was like in the 70s. I imagine this was exaggerated and it does not feel exaggerated anymore. No, they talk about news as entertainment as being a new idea. And now we pretty much accept that premise without a second thought. Absolutely. And here it's almost for chaotic neutral means it's like got to get rich got to stir the pot one thing that was interesting is the second half of the film you start to get a little bit of sinister elements in that and i definitely think i mean i'm not going to get too political here but i think that a lot of people have figured out how to use some of the things depicted in this film for like propaganda like purposes and influencing the way that large swaths of people think and for all I know, it's been happening to me too, but just from a different angle. And it's kind of scary, honestly. I won't spend too long on the soapbox, but I, there will be one or two moments where I do. So. Well, we do have a reality TV star president now. It's true. He's yeah. a headline-making machine, whatever you think about him. So this movie was well-regarded in its time. It got four Oscars, including the award for best original screenplay and three for acting 
Faye Dunaway got Best Actress. Peter Finch as Howard Beale won for Best Actor, and he was actually awarded posthumously, which is kind of ironic given where this movie goes. I didn't think about it from that angle. Yeah, that's true. And weirdly, this also got Best Supporting Actress, which I would have to say maybe there wasn't a lot of competition this year because other than Faye Dunaway, I had to pause for a moment to think, wait a minute, what? who were the other female characters in this film? <laughs> I completely agree. So this is the wife of uh, Max Schumacher, the character. So he's kind of the protagonist. He and Faye Dunaway's character are really the two main characters. And I think his wife only appears in one scene. I can't remember any scene except where basically he says he's having an affair and looking at moving out. And she goes on this. It's a good rant. It's a, like a, There's a lot of monologues in this movie. I don't know if it's a top five monologue in this movie, but is it the one that somehow got her an Oscar? I guess so. I don't know. Yeah, it says it's the shortest screen time of any acting Oscar winner. It's like five really? five minutes, yeah. Wow. Another interesting one is that Ned Beatty, who plays the kind of corporate CEO, he actually got nominated for Best Supporting Actor but did not win. And he's similarly, I think, only in one scene, maybe two scenes, but he basically just gets one memorable monologue in that scene. Yep. I remember that scene being referenced at the start of Better Call Saul, which I'm a really big Breaking Bad fan. And I remember he works in the line, you shall atone. He's like, come on, didn't you guys watch Network? I actually have a lot of thoughts on that scene. We can hold off until we get to there in the recap. But that to me was one of the more noteworthy scenes in the entire movie uh, in a number of ways. Yeah, I think they knew it. it. Like they they brought the guy in to just do that one powerhouse scene. Yeah, for sure. So there was actually two nominees for best actor from this film. William Holden, who plays Schumacher, was also nominated for best actor. And as much as Peter Finch is like just truly amazing delivering these Shakespearean monologues, I I kind of feel like Schumacher's doing more actual acting and is more central to the film and may have been more worthy of the the statue. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, Howard Beale is more of a crazy... He's more of a character uh, rather than a lead. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, if best actor goes to a lead actor. But there are instances where, like, the interesting but maybe not most prominent actor gets the nod like Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs uh both Max and Howard getting Oscar noms kind of makes me think of like a Amadeus Salieri type thing that's they interesting both got, yeah. they both got nominations yeah they're they're both they're both excellent and I can see what you're saying for sure about you kind of want like the memorable the one the one that pops off the screen the one that makes a good story so I, I can definitely buy that Peter Finch was the better pick for that. And before we fully dive into our recap, I just wanted to lay the groundwork that this is very rooted in some ways in its time period. We have 
the cultural context of the 70s. It seemed like they, you know, what do they say? Ripped from the headlines. A lot of story beats in this movie are ripped from the headlines of circa 1976. Uh, in the days of the oil crisis, you know, just coming out of the Vietnam War in, in the wake of Watergate. And there's story threads that relate to the violent activities of leftist groups such as the Weathermen and the Black Panthers. But what was crazy about that is basically every single one of those things that you mentioned has an analog in 2020. So it didn't really feel like this is just the 70s crystallized. Like, I honestly was not really ever pulled, with with a couple of exceptions, I was not really ever pulled out of the movie being like, oh, this is distinctly a 1970s thing here. But you're right that it is very much pulled from the headlines. Like, all these disparate threads are, are interwoven. Yes, the themes are timeless. And... You know, it, it is certainly prescient. I mean, it's about a guy who is repeatedly described as a prophet. So I think they had their finger on the pulse of where media was going. But as far as the events that happen, it is rooted in a moment in time. Yeah, I guess my point is that you have the oil crisis and the Vietnam War, and you can basically have all of the turmoil in the Middle East everything post 9-11 about U.S. relationships with the Middle East. For Watergate, you have everything with Trump and Russia. For the violent leftist groups and the Black Panthers, you have Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the way that some on the right kind of react to, to those. And it, it definitely, uh, to your point, there are timeless themes in the history of the United States, I suppose. But particularly today, there's, I found lots of parallels. Certainly. Not to downplay the significance of this movie at all. One thing that has perhaps not endured are the 70s fashion choices. <laughs> we have Robert Duvall in a ruffled tuxedo. Yeah. And several people are rocking the Carl Sagan look of blazer on turtleneck. Yeah. And then Faye Dunaway gets some nice, like, pantsuits. Yeah, she's a mover and a shaker. Highly positioned professional businesswoman. All right, well, let's dive into the meat and potatoes of the issue. We'll tell the story of our film. Of Network 1976. <laughs> You've picked up my habit of always <laughs> say the year with the name of the movie. Throwback to last episode. That's how we're going to do things now. So when this movie opens, Howard Beale, who is the anchor at a fictional network, the news anchor of UBS has just been fired because he's been on the air a while and his ratings are starting to droop. And when he gets his two week notice, he goes out drinking with his friend and boss, Max Schumacher, who leads the network's news division. While the two men are drinking, Howard floats the idea that he's going to kill himself live on the air. And when he raises this idea, the two kind of play it off jokingly, but they get talking about how popular television programs showing genuine violence would be. So one interesting thing actually leading into all of this is that it opens with narration, setting the stage, giving exposition. And we get 
it's something like three or four instances of narration throughout the film, which I found very jarring. You just don't see that in prestige dramas very often. I think it's gone out of style to some extent. It's like looked at as like a lazy writing tool these days. But I, I just thought that was kind of interesting how it, it basically just described almost like a Star Wars text reel, whatever you call those, text crawl at the beginning of one of those films, like sets the stage with, with exposition. That's right. I was wondering, was that Max's voice as the narrator? I couldn't really tell. Oh, I yeah. I didn't even really think about it. I don't think it was his, but maybe it was. I, I'm going to look that up, see if I can figure out who was the narrator in that work. The narrator is Lee Richardson, who is not any of the other leads. I don't know if he's any other actor. He might just be the narrator, but apparently... It's a gentleman named Lee Richardson. That's interesting. Because usually if you see narration now, it's like not the God character, like the omnipotent observer, but a voice inside a character's head, like Goodfellas does that, for example. Anyways, not not to harp too much on that. I, I really enjoyed this opening scene of, of seeing like the two buddies going out drinking, just like shooting the shit about ridiculous things they could do now that Howard Beale is, is on the way out and like thinking of some of their fond memories and stuff. It, it made me want to get a drink with them. Yeah, it made me imagine the things that you would experience being a reporter. Just all the places you would get sent and the things that you would see over the years. The two guys talk about how popular violent shows would be as kind of like uh, gladiator games, a return of gladiator combat which is something that i've definitely thought about in the past it's like reality shows flirt with showing explicit and titillating things and they always pull back they always pull short because there's all these restrictions on what you can't actually show i'm veering out of our recap for a moment but naked and afraid is the stupidest show concept I've ever seen because they can't actually deliver what they promise. It's just a headache for the editor. (laughs) It's funny that you mentioned gladiator games because one of the biggest franchises in young adult literature and that became a popular film franchise was the hunger games, Mm -hmm. which is basically a slightly dystopian future where they bring poor people in to essentially reenact, or not reenact, but basically it's like a modern take on gladiator games. So I definitely think that you're onto something that, and these guys are onto something that people find that we're all brutes on the inside. We all have lizard brains. But Max takes this conversation in stride, jokingly. Howard apparently does not. The next day he goes into work, you know, he's got his pink slip. So he's got two weeks left of news reports that he's going to be headlining. The next night he announces on the air that he's planning to kill himself live on TV in a week. I absolutely loved the way that this scene was shot, how it was like all the the people in the studio who are used to him being the stalwart professional for a decade. And then he just kind of casually announces that he's going to kill himself and like they gradually realize what's going on and like start panicking about it and i i thought this was a a really magnetic moment all the people in the control room are 
just kind of passively watching their monitors and it takes them a while to catch on <laughs> one by one what had just transpired. And for this incident, Howard gets fired, but together with Max, they're able to successfully argue to the higher ups at the network that Howard should have a chance to apologize and, and get an official sign off before he's kicked off the air altogether. Seems like kind of a stretch that he would even be able to do that, uh, get get back in the room, but he does and <laughs> goes off the rails again. This time he delivers a rant where he's calling everything bullshit. <laughs> Life yeah. is bullshit. I'm sick of putting up with all the bullshit. And writing up my notes, I was wondering if the choice of calling the network UBS was intentional. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's funny. I, I have to imagine that it might have been. That's that's a good good catch. But this BS rant proves popular. And rather than throwing him out on the street, the higher-ups at UBS decide to give Beale an ongoing news show. It's like he's an overnight sensation, and now he's gone on to be a new kind of TV star. Right. There's lots of workings in the background of like, this corporate honcho has control of this and can give authority to this. And some of that dragged a little bit for me, but you get the gist of it that that this they're striking while the iron is hot. But there was something like four different white male executive characters that kind of started to bleed together by the end for me. It took me a while to figure out who everybody was, that's true. But it's a uh, it's important to the story because there's nested corporations and they're getting more and more nested. That's true, yeah. Because the channel at this point, UBS, already belongs to a conglomerate called CCA. There's a head honcho at CCA named Frank Hackett, played by Robert Duvall. This was round about the same time that he was in the Godfather movies, a couple years later. But he's kind of the puppet master. Like, the people who are old-timers at UBS are now getting pushed around by decisions made by the conglomerate that took them over. And they're kind of bristling at that new authority that's over them. That's definitely a major theme is like the end of like news, newsy type people driving the news and determining how these things went and the rise of corporations doing so and boardrooms doing so. Yeah. Kind of like how ABC is owned by Disney and how for a while CBS was owned by General Electric, and then it got sold to Comcast. Corporations within corporations within corporations. Right. But these higher-ups take notice of Howard Beale's popularity. And just like you said, they're going to make hay while the sun shines. They're going to capitalize on this new fad of the quote-unquote angry man. <laughs> while initially... Howard's anger seems to be just organic, you know, rage against the machine type stuff. We get a scene kind of shoehorned in where Howard is in his bed and there's this crazy light on his face, his bug-eyed face. 
as he talks to God or something. He's hearing a voice in his head that he's answering that we can't hear. And we start to understand that things are more serious than we had previously believed. Yeah, it was interesting trying to track just how crazy he was because he seemed put together sometimes and other times not so much. There's another one later in the movie when he's about to go talk to Ned Beatty's character where he like has a, a spiritual moments in the middle of like this big lobby as he's going upstairs and like calls out to everyone. There's a few hints that maybe the cracks run kind of deep. But the higher ups at the network are willing to put that aside in the name of ratings. Specifically, Faye Dunaway plays Diana Christensen, who is a young female executive in charge of the UBS programming department. Basically, she greenlights show concepts. And up to this point, it's been, it seems like fictional show concepts. But she takes a keen interest in Beale's popularity and starts giving development notes about this ostensibly nonfiction news program. She's like, oh, you should incorporate a psychic. Basically, she's giving notes that would shape like a sitcom style show or any other fictional show that might be developed. Like, oh, your news program should have this and that would boost the ratings. That would really get viewers. I think we were supposed to be a little bit aghast at this, but it felt kind of quaint that it wasn't like that people would be surprised that, I don't know, networks would try to inject this stuff into their news show. It was interesting, yeah. But but she uh, she's really into it. I, I liked all of her crazy ideas building throughout the show. She always, every scene, she had some new crazy idea for something you could bring into the quote-unquote news shows that, that she was in charge of. Yeah, she seems to love anything exploitative. She would bring back Gladiator games if she could. <laughs> and initially, Max, who's kind of the old newsman, part of the old guard of television, resists Diana's micromanagement, but he does not stop short of beginning an affair with this much younger woman. Yeah, I don't know how old he was supposed to be, but close to retirement age, and Faye Dunaway is like mid-30s. The difference is pretty stark. But another of these programs that Diana has greenlit, one of these things she's masterminding to kind of take the world by storm and grab as many eyes as possible through extreme means is called the Mao Zedong Hour. The idea is that left-wing terror groups will film their crimes and send the footage into the news station to air. Basically, the network starts tacitly encouraging these activist groups and their actions. And the producers of the show use their status as journalists to protect the sources who are sending them the footage and to avoid interference from law enforcement. I don't know how far this could actually go in reality, <laughs> but it's a little frightening here. It led to one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is when they're discussing the specifics of the contract for this show. <laughs> it's just shot as like this insanity with like a contrast 
of these people like up in each other's throats and like shouting political things at each other, like alternating with <laughs> these like really mundane contract negotiation, like who gets which rights and stuff. And I thought that that scene was maybe the funniest scene in the movie. Yeah, it was office banality and contract chit chat interspersed with militant gunfire. Exactly, yeah. But eventually, Diana is able to convince Frank Hackett to give her more and more control over the show to the point where they strong arm Max Schumacher out of UBS entirely and just put the news programs under Diana's programming department. Howard continues to climb in the ratings with his enraged rants. And he gets a particularly popular one where he yells what became the most iconic line of the film and even within the film, which is he he encourages his viewers to run to your window, open it up and scream, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know that the impact of this scene should have been blunted by the fact that it's been parodied and referenced a hundred million times in things I've seen. But I have to say that this was just electric, like really fantastic. Like I wanted to myself jump up and open my window and shout, I'm mad as hell and not going to take this anymore. Like this scene was 10 out of 10 for me. I I loved it. I love the way it was shot and edited. It cuts to like a big courtyard near apartment buildings presumably and everybody's throwing open their windows and and screaming it out into the night and it almost seemed like a musical number in some you know a huge musical from a bygone era just the cast of thousands everybody all screaming this yeah i like that it's like the the massive greek chorus shouting it in unison together and so soon he's got the number one show on tv just this crazy angry guy to the point that other stations are testing out knockoffs <laughs> and the show itself is just hilarious <laughs> juxtaposition of like this old guy who's got like this funky stare in his eye and like is barely keeping it together like a part of this variety hour with like young hip people cheering in the in the cheap seats and and like i don't know all these acts and stuff. And it's just a very funny juxtaposition of this guy going on these existential Shakespearean monologues. And then it seems to always faint at the end of them, I guess. I don't know. And that with like all of the, the glamor of, of a hit show around it. I thought that Peter Finch looked rather like the guy who played Frank in return of the living dead. And I don't know if you noticed that at all. They they have similar face structures and they both yell a lot. That's funny. I didn't think of it in the time, but I, I can see exactly what you're saying. He's got kind of this, this schlubby, slightly out of touch look to him. And yeah, he, he gets to use those pipes for sure. I could imagine Howard Beale fighting a zombie. <laughs> Attempting to. <laughs> well, with that kind, you never can win. There's an ongoing plot with Max and Diana's affair. As the show climbs in the ratings, it gets more intense. 
to the point that Max decides to leave his wife. I don't know how he thinks this is going to go. I guess this is just another moment of strike while the iron is hot. Like, while you've got an attractive young woman interested, you better go for it, I guess. But, I mean, he knows that she jumps on whatever the new big thing is. So, I don't know how long he thinks she's going to be interested for. I didn't quite know how to read her interest in him. At first, it looked purely manipulative as a means to get a leg up on wrestling control of the the news department. But then when they get back together and it seems a little more serious and I I wasn't quite sure what to make of of that relationship, although they're both quite good and they, they get some good moments and some good back and forths out of it. I mean, just to put it frankly, Faye Dunaway is, I mean, stunningly beautiful woman. And we have this kind of generic looking old guy uh, on the other half of that. Uh, eventually, Howard Beale discovers that CCA, the corporation that already owns UBS, is itself being purchased by a larger conglomerate of corporations, which is kind of a shadow entity controlled by the Saudi Arabians or Saudi Arabian interests the oil producers basically in the Middle East. And he delivers a rant where he rails against this. He's calling on, you know, the proud red-blooded Americans to flood the White House with angry letters to hopefully cause the president to step in and block the deal. I thought today it would totally be China or something. Sinister foreign interests with deep pockets. Yeah, I had a hard time with this scene. Uh, out of all of his his many great rants, this one struck me as the most nasty, particularly because he was like talking about the Arabs coming in and taking control of America. And it kind of felt like it was supposed to be a Mr. Smith goes to Washington type patriotic moment. But really, it just reminded me of like xenophobia and how much that has driven much of the political climate in 2020. Basically, how Trump managed to be elected was like vilifying, oh, he's going to build a wall to keep out all the, the Mexicans, etc. Felt kind of tone deaf to me, but and I, I had trouble trying to figure out whether that was intentional or whether we were supposed to be like roused by this, the way that people were roused in this story. I think fewer voices is never a good thing when it comes to media. Just things buying up other things becoming huge octopuses with their tendrils and everything. You know, when Disney owns not just ABC, but then also Fox, whether or not it's a foreign interest, once a corporation becomes that big, I think you need to start asking questions. Definitely agree on that. Yeah. Yeah, that part rang true to me for sure. I mean, like conglomerates, if you've ever seen some of the charts of some of the conglomerates, and how it's gotten worse in like the last, I don't know, decade and a half. It is pretty scary how how much a very small number of corporations control the entire discourse of media in the United States and around the world. There's this company called Sinclair, which you'll often see referenced in political terms. They own a bunch of local news stations and they kind of do what this is describing here. This is a real life thing where they basically say, 
here are the things that you should talk about in your local nightly news. And you can find supercuts of <laughs> different news readers using the exact same sound bites, but making it feel like it's kind of off the cuff. And it's kind of scary about how who is deciding what goes in our ears, you know? I think you're right that the fewer voices means fewer people control it and therefore it's easier to corrupt. But of course, this latest diatribe makes the high muckety mucks at CCA mad because they need this deal to go through to stay afloat. And so we get an appearance of Wikipedia says he's the chairman, just some king level executive of CCA played by Ned Beatty who pulls Howard into his office. He's almost like a god of television. This is portrayed as like a beatific experience. He drags Howard into a beam of light in his office at the end of this huge conference table and sits him down and goes and stands at the other end of the table and delivers this sermon on globalism. Yeah, this is one of the weirdest scenes in the movie for me because of the reasons you described. Like the direction in this film and the cinematography is all very good, but it all is like to spotlight the actors and the dialogue and the script. Like there's not very much that calls attention to itself visually, but this moment very much does from the set that's just like cartoonishly long table with all these lights on it. And then the way that this conversation is shot with like this sweaty close-ups on Beale and this like halo-like, but it's more of almost like satanic, like the way that it's almost reddish light on him. Ned Beatty at the other end of the table of the chairman, it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb to me. I mean, it's a cool scene though. I, I think that it's one of the strongest pieces of writing and just in terms of being like really compelling to listen to it's like ear candy but also just like laying the satire the thematic elements like right out there so this guy the chairman his name is jensen and jensen's point in his rant a lot of characters get rants in this movie but jensen's point is that nations no longer exist beyond simply being vessels through which the grand worldwide exchange of currency flows. Money is what drives the world and borders are just technicalities. Things are homogenizing. And he also talks about it on like a cosmic level too. It's like the thing that connects us and stuff. I, I don't know. I guess this kind of breaks Howard's spirit. People say that his rants become less angry and more depressing, although it's honestly hard to tell. But Jensen seems happier with the things that he's saying and is apparently shielding Howard from being fired once his ratings start to slip. We also get a scene where Max leaves Diana. I guess she's not as invested in him as he wants her to be. He gets this good line where he calls her an embodiment of television that she's soulless and doesn't care about anything. But again, I don't really know where he expected their relationship to go. I think if he was expecting something long-term or that he wanted her to like make him the focus of her world, 
if he actually thought that was going to happen, that was a very naive thing to think. I think it's almost more of a thematic parallel to what's going on in the movie, how he like has a flirtation with this new media concept, this new television definition. And of course, it ends up being something fleeting that, as you noted earlier, always looking for the next thing, as opposed to the the wife he left, which was the old fashioned way, the good way this movie would have us believe. But <laughs> that line, the embodiment of television that you mentioned, reminded me of one of the, the funnier moments where she actually gets like aroused by ratings coming in and stuff. And that's like one of her major turn ons. And there's one scene where in the midst of the affair, they like go to, I don't know if it's her room or a hotel room or something. And they're like stripping down and getting in bed together. And like, she's getting hot and heavy by like bringing up what the latest numbers were and what the next topics are on the the new show are going to be or something. Yeah. How good her show is doing. (laughs) And it's getting her off. But now Howard's numbers are slipping. The fad is wearing off. His tone is has changed. And so Hackett and Diana and the other high ups at UBS and CCA start scheming. What are they going to do about Howard? Because Jensen is defending him. So the chairman of the corporation won't let him be fired. So they hit on this plan that they're going to have the... Ecumenical Liberation Army, who are the terrorist group that's been featured in the Mao Zedong Hour. And they're going to get them to assassinate Howard live on television. And that's what happens. And the movie ends. They stand up in the studio and gun him down with a machine gun. It, it made me think of Joker which also ends in a very different way with an on-screen assassination. I haven't seen Joker yet. I do know that's how it ends. And oh, I, can, yeah, I hope I didn't spoil. Sorry. No, I can imagine some parallels there. It's in a very different context. It should go without saying. Still, I could imagine Howard Beale saying, we live in a society. <laughs> I, I kind of want to go control F on the screenplay and see if he ever says anything quite like that. Then over the credits or just before the credits we get this screen that's a bunch of little television screens the image is broken up like a fly's eye into a compound array of different tv broadcasts covering the assassination of this guy being intercut with various commercials all the different news report takes on the murder and it's just a bunch of noise And we get a re-entry of that narration that you mentioned earlier. It says, this was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. What did you think of that final stinger? I thought it wasn't necessary. I think they could have just ended on the gunfire. Although, I don't know, I I guess I like, because it started with a bunch of TV screens too. So it worked as a bookend I guess it started with narration as well. I liked the TV aspect because that played into it. I thought the the narration at the end was a little tacky and was just reemphasizing a theme that was already there. You know, I guess that was, uh, like you said, narration was part of the structure of the screenplay, so I could see having it there. Right. The punchline doesn't quite land, though. 
For me, at least. I think we're on the same page there. And that is Network from 1976. Time for some good things, I reckon. One thing I think we both would have to call out is this film has got some strong dialogue. I got the sense watching it that Aaron Sorkin would probably like this movie. That's my take, at least. And sure enough, he is quoted in the Wikipedia article. What he had to say was that no predictor of the future, not even George Orwell, has ever been as right as screenwriter Chayefsky was when he wrote Network. It's like Payev Chayefsky or something. It's Patty Patty Chayefsky was the writer of this film. I looked him up and he had a pretty long career as both a playwright and a screenwriter. And this is his most famous thing, but it's quite good. I think the script is outstanding. Aaron Sorkin is an interesting point. Some of Sorkin's shows and movies do have that they do have good monologues, but their signature tool is like the back and forth, the ratatat. And here, this movie is just built around basically monologues, like these. We've called them rants, just like these long speeches, and they're they're very beautiful for sure. I didn't know whether to put this as a good or a bad thing. I mean, you expect it from Howard due to the film's reputation and just the way that he's set up that he would have a lot of rants. But everybody in this movie gets at least one long, verbose, angry, shouted rant. Yeah, uh, yeah basically every character does. And, and they're, they're mostly quite good. I find them pretty incisive. It really made me think of like classic stage plays where like you have someone, I'm thinking of like Hamlet on stage holding the skull and like doing his famous monologue, especially uh, Peter Finch as Beale. Like he really feels like a classic Shakespearean type actor here, but everyone gets like something Really meaty and dramatic to say. I was impressed so many of them were able to do it. Just deliver these long speeches. I would have trouble memorizing everything. That's probably true. So this script by by Patty Chayefsky, the Writers Guild of America selected it as the number eight greatest screenplay in film history a few years ago. So I think that's a pretty, pretty high praise that a guild of writers put it as one of the top 10 screenplays ever. Or that might have only been American ones, but but even still. Yeah, I would say it makes sense that it took home the Oscar for screenplay as well as the three acting awards, even if supporting actress is kind of a curveball considering the low screen time. I also thought it was funny. Like, it was oftentimes very ironic. And it didn't need to be jokey to be funny. I mean, sometimes it was. Just like some some of the way that the, just the irony in the scenarios and the way that people thought about things, I often found myself chuckling as much as I was like being enthused and admiring the uh, the rants, the the various long winded speeches that characters have. There was more comedy than I was expecting, but it's certainly very black. What else did you notice that was good about this film? We hit most of my positive notes in what you said and as we were kind of going through. A couple things I wanted to add. We've kind of mentioned it, but the cast really is outstanding. There's not really a weak link. I couldn't even think of a part that I thought wasn't really excellent. 
in particular. So I, I found on Faye Dunaway's Wikipedia page that Dunaway is regarded as one of the greatest and most beautiful actresses of her generation. And I've seen her in a few things and she's never really left that much of an impression on me. But I would say here, she really left an impression on me, both as being an excellent actress and just like being insanely beautiful. It's so easy to see how anyone would fall for her in the film. She's just got this uh, this energy about her. I thought she was actually the, the best one here, in my opinion. Although, like I said, everyone was great. Beale is so... Hammy's not the right word, but like, I don't even know what the right word is. But just the, the delivery of those those monologues, just, I just wanted to soak it up. It was so, so good to listen to. I think I'd call him captivating. Yeah. You don't want to look away. Agreed. Holden definitely holds everything together uh, as, as Schumacher. He, he's really good. And I, one thing I read, I didn't really think about, but he's kind of like a classic Hollywood actor. And he gets to use a lot of curse words in this, which was not very common in the classic Hollywood era. So like seeing a sort of classic Hollywood type actor getting to drop F-bombs and stuff, it's, it's fun. And it fits with the theme that stripping away prudity, uh, that's probably not a word, puritanical attitudes... It's like if, if you do away with all the puritanical red tape that governs what you can say and do in popular entertainment, it could open this new frontier. That's true, yeah. I'm I'm still just really deeply incensed about the television show Naked and Afraid. <laughs> what a stupid concept. Tell us more about Naked and Afraid. They just, that's what it says on the tin, and... It's exactly the thing that they can't give you. It promises nudity, knowing from square one they can't show nudity. So what is the point? I, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like if you want to go there, go there and be done with it. Don't, don't, you know, beat around the bush. Nice pun. I'm for veracity in these things. Uh, but I think... It has to be said and, and has been said to get back on topic that this movie is like a window into the future or it was when it was made. And now we just take all these things as a matter of course that news shows are for entertainment and the corporations have a message that they're trying to drive home through all their talking heads. And it's as relevant now and maybe more so than it was in the 70s. Agreed, for sure. One thing that was almost a downside for the movie for me is that just, I think I kind of mentioned this up front, it didn't feel that provocative and shocking. Like, I think the satire was supposed to be more biting and surprising. It just felt like that's media business now, you know? Like, I think the impact of it is almost, in fact, diminished by how good and predictive a satire it was. From 40 years ago, 45 years ago. I can see that. This is kind of a minor thing, but I was struck in a lot of scenes by how good the lighting is in this movie and just how thoughtfully done it must have been behind the scenes. Uh, we've got the, the scene where Ned Beatty delivers his rant, where there's all kinds of interesting things going on with the lighting. 
I don't really know that much about the craft to describe it in detail, but I mean, you've got the scene where Beale is talking to God and he's got the like crazy beam of light on his face. The dates that Max and Diana have in a couple different restaurants, they've got like perfect 70s hair lighting. I don't know. I just kept noticing moments where interesting choices were made with the lights. That's interesting. My, my take on almost everything visual about this film is that it was supposed to be competent and its sole purpose is to essentially stay out of the way and like let you devour the, the actors and the script and everything. With a couple of exceptions, definitely the Ned Beatty scene. And there was a couple other moments too. It's interesting about the lighting specifically as like something that you noticed as particularly compelling. I think whoever was doing it was trying to be noticed, but I can't say for sure. <laughs> uh, the last thing I wanted to point out as good is just relevant to me personally. My favorite movie of all time is UHF, the sole starring vehicle of Weird Al Yankovic. I noticed a lot of parallels between that movie and Network. I had never seen Network before. This is my first pick for the goods that I didn't come in having previously seen. Uh, but if I had, I totally would have queued up a double feature for this episode of Network together with UHF as another chapter in my Violent Ends feature where we take two movies that have similar premises but reach drastically different endings. One where you get the stereotypical happy ending where people live their dreams and one where everything goes south and a bloody mess. Yeah, you messaged me and said, this makes me think of UHF. And as soon as you said that, I thought of like exactly how you could have made this a Violent Ends episode. Like there's really a lot of things in common with like all the discussion about salvaging a network and uh, what's the programming going to be. And like you said... The conclusions end up in very different places. Yeah, you have this unexpected emergence of a talent, an offbeat, ranting, unhinged man who comes out of nowhere and takes the airwaves by storm. <laughs> and he ends up, you know, a successful television darling in UHF. And I guess also here, but he goes out in a hail of gunfire. <laughs> And I mean, some of those parallels are definitely intentional. 13 years had already gone by by the time UHF came out. And I mean, they even have Stanley scream out, these floors are dirty as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So they knew what they were doing. But I think the parallels go even beyond just appropriating that line. Like a lot of the sets <laughs> look the same. Uh, Stanley Spadowski's clubhouse with all the people in the bleachers cheering and there's like the same big scheduling board where they can swap out the different shows that are on so not to belabor the point too much here but had I known ahead of time there would have been more of that <laughs> type of discussion in this episode yeah now I feel like you're champing at the bit to maybe name some not so good things Dan so have at it I do have a few. So one is that maybe this is just the nature of it being a satire, but 
I had trouble really connecting with any characters. Nobody's really heroic in this. Like the only character that I could think of who you can't really blame for their decisions or their motivations is Schumacher's wife who he leaves. Like basically everybody else has as much unlikable about them as likable. And so that keeps me at a distance a little bit. It's like, it's a different type of movie. And again, I know that satires, that's kind of the point, but definitely keeps you at a distance just a hair. I would say that the constant shouting almost becomes a parody of itself. Once you catch onto the pattern that there's going to be a moment where this character that you've just met is going to have some big, you mentioned Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's kind of what it feels like, but happening like every 10 minutes. Somebody's going to get on a soapbox. That's true. That that actually did not bother me as much, that structure, because the writing was good enough that it, it carried, as was the acting. But you're right. It is pretty repetitive about everybody getting a paragraph-long opportunity to shout at someone else or at a screen. We touched on it before, but I also thought that Howard's madness seemed to escalate very abruptly. You know, the way that it's introduced is he just seems to have some maybe legitimate grievances that he's airing because, you know, what are they going to do? I've already been fired. But then, like, in the next scene, suddenly he's Joan of Arc or something, talking to a beam of light. I think one thing the movie does well in that regard, or I think this is intentional, is how Nobody actually really seems to care about it, except in the context of ratings and the show and stuff. It's like this dude's going off the deep end, and all anyone cares about is, will this business deal get closed? Will this get the 48 rating or whatever that it needs? Which I think was an intentional sort of uh, commentary. And speaking of uh, Beale, one thing that uh, I found about the story is that it felt like it flip-flopped five times about whether, oh, Beale, he's got bad ratings, he needs to get fired, to, wow, Beale is really the sensation, to, oh, Beale's getting bad ratings, he's got to get fired again. Like, it felt like it constantly flip-flopped on that to diminishing returns, for me at least. Yeah, the biggest instance of that for me is when supposedly there's a tone change in the show that leads to him becoming less popular and I couldn't really discern any kind of tone change. It seemed like the same type of thing we had been hearing from him. And I I also wasn't really sure why Jensen would be happy with the direction the show was going. It still seemed like he had the same kind of talking points. So I didn't really know. What it made me want is to see more of the Howard Beale show so I could (laughs) properly gauge it. Yeah. I want to sit down and, and watch the whole season. (laughs) binge watch it that's right here's an observation that's not it's not a not so good thing so you know you and i i think are one or two years apart in age and from when i was growing up there was already always like a hundred networks and there was always something you could watch it wasn't just like the three channels and that was all you had and i think there's something i've seen this in older shows older movies where they're depicting TV as like, if you're on TV, it's like a big deal because that always means a third of the nation is watching you. In fact, one of my favorite movies is That Thing You Do, a story about a one-hit wonder band from the 60s. 
and towards the end of their shot at fame, they get to film a movie. They play kind of a dumb fake band in this like Hollywood blockbuster movie. And they're kind of ho-hum about it. And then they're like, oh, and you're going to go to one of the talk, sh- like one of the variety shows. You're going to be the mu- musical performer at the end of that show. And they're like, what? We're going to be on TV? And they're like losing their minds and everybody's so excited. And for me, like being on TV, like, I mean, no offense, like you're on TV. It's like, it's. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. The bar to entry has lowered considerably. And for me, like, if I was going to be in a Hollywood blockbuster, that would be a way bigger deal than, like, appearing on a show or, like, being one of 75 different talk TV shows in the evening. Like, I feel like that would go under the radar. It wouldn't be, like, a national sensation. You're absolutely right. There's, like, a lost status that television held. I was going to say, yeah, it's like the Johnny Carson era. Like, I can't even fathom how... He was like a national institution, like one of the five most famous people in the world just from having a nightly late show. It almost feels like the five crime families or something, like a gangster movie or the houses in Game of Thrones or something. When there's only four networks or three networks. Right. You know, the the intermingling, the mutual respect, how, you know, you kind of got to go through got to clear your crimes with the other families or whatever. You don't right. you don't kill a made man. <laughs> Sorry, Joe Pesci. <laughs> I I think I think UHF was right around the transition away from that cuz that's part of the thing about UHF is like their network was not one of the major networks, right? Exactly. Well, they're competing with a network affiliate and the guy at the network is like, "Oh, you're you guys are a UHF station. You can't compete with a network. And then that's what happens. Right. Yeah, I mean, UHF was was essentially public access. So that the small timers would even be seen by anybody is astounding. Yeah, Gauntley could have appeared on, on that channel, maybe. That's the dream. It was certainly <laughs> an influential film on me personally. But yeah, we've had the balkanization of the media the atomization, you know, not only to the point that we've had hundreds of TV channels and cable and all these ways of watching TV, but then we have the atomization of production as well. There's YouTube. You can watch anything made by anyone, anywhere, at any time. And it diminishes the power of individual content creators and distributors. Right, which I think is something you said earlier, ultimately a positive for the world, you know, for the good of the medium and for just, you know, the more you can democratize and give access to things, the more creativity and innovation and quality stuff is going to be made. But there is something lost. It's like, I kind of missed the days when it was really hard for me to find specific songs or albums online like the Goofy movie soundtrack for me was like a holy grail. Like it was only, you could only buy used copies for $40 and it wasn't on iTunes. And so like I would want to listen to the songs. I would actually have to play my VHS. There was something special about the fact that I coveted it, but couldn't listen to it just at will. But like nowadays, everything's on Spotify. Everything's on YouTube or a torrent or streaming on Netflix and 
you know, it's good overall that we have more access to things, that anyone can make anything, that there's more shows and web shows that there ever has been. But there is something, something lost, I'd have to say. So is it time now to give our scores? Well, it would be, but I would like to interject one thing here, if you don't mind. Please do. I wrote my own Beal rant for 2020, and I'm going to deliver it to you. You ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Times are bad, worse than we could have feared. A global pandemic threatens to decimate even the developed countries. And while we wait in fear to die alone in a hospital, we sit around and stare at our screens, our precious devices. Marijuana is legal in half the country, but our war on drugs is not over, not by a long shot. It's the devices that are the real drugs. And this time, it's not a local dealer gaining the profits. It's the conglomerates and the corporations. The largest collection of wealth and capital in human history, hell-bent on exploiting me and you and everyone we know, to bring it even farther. They beg us to worship the almighty like, the hallowed retweet, as they pay off legislators and hide their sums in offshore accounts. And what do we get out of it? What does the average man gain from these social networks that promise us more connection and communities than our parents and our grandparents could have ever fathomed? The most depressed generation in American history. They can take our swipes and our keystrokes, but not our voices, our real human voices. So I want you, yes you Brian, and you listeners, to get up right now, slam the device shut, toss the phone in the trash can, and go to the window and yell, I'm lonely as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And when you hear those other voices crying the same cry from their own windows, you'll know, perhaps for the first time in this godforsaken year of 2020, that you are in fact not alone. We may be staring into a void as a human species, but it can be our void. So say it with me one more time. I'm lonely as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. All right, there you go. That was my uh, my 2020 version of, of something that uh, that Beale might say on his his Howard Beale show. Well, I agree. I would yell that. <laughs> uh, I won't slam my device shut because I don't know what that would do to our recording. But you're right. If you're listening to our podcast in a car, roll down your window and yell out the window. <laughs> All right, thanks for indulging me. We can we can go on to our, our signature section now. Oh, well, thank you for coming prepared. That was excellent writing. Very well read. I'd say you're worthy of a Best Actor Oscar, but you're going to have to die first. <laughs> did I mention I did some research on getting winning an Oscar after you die? How do you pronounce that word? Is it posthumous? Yes, I've heard posthumous. Okay, so there's only one other acting posthumous Oscar, and I assume you know what that is. Heath Ledger for Dark Knight. Correct. But that was only supporting. Right, it was not lead. Another person to win a posthumous Oscar is Walt Disney. He was the producer of Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, which won Best Animated Short. And you may know this as the second short that was stitched together. Three of them were stitched together to make The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. But that is the middle of the three sections in that film that was initially released as a short. And then the last kind of noteworthy posthumous Oscar was William A. Horning. 
He actually won two posthumous Oscars for Best Art Direction in two consecutive years. So a movie called Gigi, he won it for. Um, I assume I typed that right. I've never heard of that movie. And that was the Oscars were actually like a month after he died. But he had also completed work on Ben-Hur. He had done graphic design for Ben-Hur, which won it the following year. So he got two posthumous Oscars in two different years, which I thought was pretty wild. Wow. For some reason, posthumous Oscar. If we keep saying that, it's it's losing meaning to me. It sounds like a Harry Potter name or something. <laughs> Oscar posthumous. I like that. That's good. Now I believe it's time to give our rankings. So as our guest tonight, Dan... When it comes to Network 1976, where does it fall for you? I know I had a few negative things to say, but I actually thought this movie was pretty worthy of its reputation. It wasn't quite a master masterpiece in my eyes, but it was quite up there. And I'm going to give it an exceptionally good because I think it is, it's just an outstanding piece of filmmaking and writing and its themes are so prevalent you should see this even in 2020. It's not something just for cinema buffs. You would enjoy this, you being the collective you of listeners. I, I think you should go give this a uh, a watch, for sure. I watched this one last night for the first time, and I had a really good time watching this movie. I was captivated all throughout, and I'm also going to give it a 7 out of 8, and exceptionally good. It holds up very well and is relevant today so if you have never seen it before if it's somehow evaded your notice definitely check it out so before people change their dials listen to something else and our voices are lost amid the millions of content creators out there now what parting thoughts have you got for us dan so my parting thought of the week is that i appeared on a different podcast this week well i at least recorded it in the past week. I don't know if it will be up by the time this is posted, but I did a two-part podcast on the TV show Enlightened, which has come up a couple times. It's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's definitely its own particular beast. It's not like light fun watching. It has a lot of uncomfortable moments, but I think it has a lot of really profound things to say about what it means to be enlightened as a person. How do you become an agent of change? Is that something worth striving for? Is that a, always a heroic thing, etc.? The podcast I appeared on is called Dear Discreet Guide, which is a business-themed podcast, but it's kind of it goes in all sorts of different places. It's actually my second time appearing there. I talked about the death of Adam Schlesinger, one of my favorite songwriters who was one of the first prominent deaths from COVID about six months ago. And hopefully by the time that this is posted, you'll see at least one of my two enlightened episodes up there. I've got to check that out. What was your connection to that podcast? So she actually found us, found me through the, the site Earn This, where I had written a article about Adam Schlesinger. This was again about six months ago. And, um, she wanted to talk about the topic of professional legacy, professional creative legacies, as kind of the connection to work, I guess. But mostly she just liked his music and wanted to talk with someone about his music. And he, he's best known for the band Fountains of Wayne, Stacy's mom. 
maybe the single you know him from. And I, I wrote a tribute to him when he died and she found that and reached out to me and uh, we, we both thought it went pretty well. So she said, if I'll look for maybe TV shows or movies that you might have an interest in that we could talk about sometime. So we had a good time talking about it. That's awesome. So a recent project that I have been involved in back in October, a friend approached me with the concept of making kind of a gorilla interactive art installation in a forest near his house that he likes to walk through. It's a park. Um, but I, I mean, it's just like a path that goes through an area of woods. And so we made this kind of AR attraction, augmented reality, where he built these wooden signs that we stuck along the path and they had QR codes on them. And when you scan the QR code, it played like a little mini gauntlet type video. And the angle of that one was called Monsters in the Park. And so it was like each marker had an informative video about a different type of monster. And it sent you off to look for something a little bit off the beaten path in the woods. And it's like each, each key thing you were supposed to find had a key word written under it. And if you gathered up all the keywords and sent them in, we sent you a Monster Hunter certificate, like a license. That's really cool. I saw this on Facebook, and I didn't get to make it out there for your Halloween one, but I think it's an awesome concept. And so my friend who went to business school and is really trying to hit on a interactive, he calls it an adventure park concept. He wants to establish his adventure park. And this is one stab at that, that he's really been gung-ho about marketing. And so the next installment is coming soon. We're filming scenes for it tomorrow. This is uh, Elves in the Park is coming for December. Maybe I'll try to make it out there for this one. I'm, I'm excited. I, I'm excited too. I don't quite yet know what form it's going to take. I know this is going to be a little bit more ambitious in terms of effects, possibly interactivity. We will see, but that's on the horizon. Cool, good luck. And now I am dying to know, Dan, <laughs> what is our next movie? What comes next? So I thought about doing a Thanksgiving movie, and I actually have one in mind, but I decided not to do that one. You know, we'll be doing this podcast for years. We can do that in a future Thanksgiving because I have so many teen comedies that I just want to talk about and rant about, both positive and negative. But I don't want this to be the teen comedy hour. So I'm trying to space them out. And I got uh, Everybody Wants Some in pretty early. And now we're a few episodes later. So I'm going to hit you with another teen comedy. I have a fascination with a very specific story premise. It's, it's not quite a trope. I don't usually trope is like a specific beat. This is more of like a general outline of a story. Um, but I've encountered a handful that use it and I have two very specific movies that I couldn't pick between. So I'm going to let you choose your own adventure here. I'm going to give you, I'm not going to tell you the names of the movies or the premise, but I'm going to give you a rough outline and allow you to choose one of those two. You ready? Okay. So option A is a fairly well-regarded dramedy from the late eighties. That's a minor work of a pretty well-known creator and displays many of that creator's idiosyncrasies. 
And option B is an almost completely unknown and unwatched all one night type comedy from the mid 90s that got pretty bad reviews at the time and has some glaringly bad components, but I also think has some underrated charm in it. Without giving away what the movies are, would you say you have a marked favorite among the pair? I would love to talk about either of them, but I think the episode will be better if it is something that you have more to say about. So I could see either one of these being something that you have not very much to say about. And so I'm trying to lead you in with if either of those sound more appealing to you. Okay, well, thank you for letting me open the door. I picked the one from the 80s. Okay, so that was option A. That is Some Kind of Wonderful, written by John Hughes, but not directed by John Hughes. And it is very John Hughesian and will give us some John Hughes stuff to talk about. Have you seen Some Kind of Wonderful? I have not seen Some Kind of Wonderful. I have seen some kind of John Hughes films. Okay. <laughs> so that is from, I believe, 1987. And I will now tell you what that, that story premise is. And we'll talk a little bit more about why I am particularly obsessed with this next episode. So the, the premise is you have a guy and a girl who are best friends. Usually in high school, young adult doesn't have to be. In this case, they are in high school. And the guy has a shot with like the beautiful, very popular girl that he's long crushed on without realizing that the girl is actually his, his good friend would actually be a much better romantic pairing for him. And the movie kind of follows the quest of him attempting to have the shot at the, the popular girl as the, the friend's begin to realize their feelings for each other. And so it's a Ned Declassified type situation. Oh, that is a g very good example of it. That is one of the, in my mind, one of the canonical examples of it, for sure. Well, I look forward to it. Good pull, by the way. S Susie Crabgrass, Ned and Moe's. All right. So some kind of wonderful. We'll talk about it uh, next week. I'll say I'm already pumped for my pick for you the next time around, so... <laughs> I hope we can keep this enthusiasm going. I've been having a good time. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening. Everybody out there in Radio Land. Before we wrap up, one last thing. Do you want me to tell you what the other movie is? Sure. So it's a 1996 comedy called Trojan War. And it's a play on... He is trying to get a condom in one night in his shot to, to hook up with the popular girl. And it's like an almost the Odyssey type quest to find a condom. And uh, it's starring Will Friedle. I think that's how you pronounce it. Who you may know as the older brother in Boy Meets World. But kind of had like a very brief flash in the pan career as a comic starring actor in, in the mid 90s. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for choosing us among the endless choices of people putting out their voices into the abyss in this lonely year of 2020. This has been The Goods. We've enjoyed bringing it to you. This is Brian signing off. And Dan. 